You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Give you a date, September 4th, 2016. What were you doing around that time? You remember <laughs> that exact moment? Well, around that time, actually, two weeks prior, my son was born. That was pretty cool. But on that day in particular, September 4th, 2016, we all began our journey through the great book, Genesis. All right? And we started our series called His Story Begins, and we covered I think pretty cool topics, topics like creation, topics like the institution of marriage, first man, first woman, the original sin, the fall. And then after Genesis 3, we began the journey of kind of investigating the lives of certain biblical figures and the fact that, you know what, these guys that were all kind of named after, maybe your name is Abraham or Moses or David or, or Isaac, all these people that we kind of named, are named after, these famous figures, really had a lot of issues, they had a lot of problems in their lives, but you know what? As, as problematic as their lives were, as disobedient and rebellious as they were, God's grace was abundant. And so you see the story kind of unfolding, God leading them. God as a father, as a generous God, just kind of leading them along through their unfaithfulness and so on. And we talked about what sin is. We talked about what grace is. We talked about how God has taken the initiative that it was God who comes near to us. Right? How wonderful is that? That we're the ones, if you think about it, are constantly running away from him, right? But God, he's the one who comes near to us, and so he teaches us how to trust in him, how to learn from him, right? And so we learn also that, you know what, you and I, even though that we are believers, even though many of us are followers, that you're still going to mess up in your life, that you're still going to stumble, you're still going to make a lot of mistakes, and that sometimes before us we'll have nothing in front of us, and yet God in his goodness provides for us. He provides not only grace, he not only provides mercy, pr provides the sustenance and the necessities that we need in our lives, right? But not only that, we learn that these biblical families, that they experience a lot of highs and lows, but they also experience a lot of great prosperity, a lot of great joy, a lot of good things have happened in their lives. And yet, despite the prosperity and the goodness and the richness and the wealth of their lives, that they are still families that are marked by suffering, Right? The suffering was still very much a part of what they had to endure, that they faced injustices. We learned that also through repentance, God, he was in his faithfulness, reconciled you to him, right? When we repented, when we said, God, I admit, I made a mistake. God, I admit, I'm wrong. God, I admit, I need you. God says, my, my faithful child, come to me, and I will reconcile you to me. We also learned that, you know what? Partial obedience is not the same as full obedience, Right? That God says, I don't want you straddling the fence as some agnostic thinking, will he, won't he? But God is saying, I want all of you because I'm giving all of me to you. I want full obedience, he says. Not only that, more recently we learned that God in his sovereign grace even makes the wickedness serve him. That the wickedness even serve him and that even though sin haunts you and I each and every day, God's grace is greater and he extends that to us each and every day. And he can even use that evil that was used against us ultimately for his good and for his glory. And sometimes that 
It's hard to wrap our minds around that. How can suffering be good? How can bad things be good? How can wickedness and evil be good? How can the pain that I endured and suffered all my life be good? But God says, you know, I'm over that. I'm over that. And I can do anything. And I'm using it for your good and for my glory. And so we can trust that and that's what we learned. And so here we are, 15 months later. That's awesome. Just a couple weeks before Christmas, turn to your neighbor and say, Merry pre-Christmas. I love Christmas, don't you? It's such a wonderful time of the year. It really is. So today, and, and by the way, just, that's just a, a plug-in. I do want you guys to join us for the Bethlehem Nights, whether you, are gonna, whether you participate in it or simply just you know, be a spectator, but just come and, and support all the ministries within Shining Star Community Church. So today, there's two points I believe the Lord desires to reveal to us at the end of our study here in Genesis. My first point is this, okay? It's about building God's covenant family. In other words, it's about building up the church. Okay, that's my first point. So <clears throat> when we read through the Bible, it's kind of hard, I think, for us to identify with certain people, certain events, and certain times. Like, have you ever thought, what would it be like to live in King David's time? Like when it was, you know, right now, what do we do? We vote the person into office, don't we? Right? But back then, it was about God's anointing on the king to lead the people. And so it was a time when the church and state were the same thing. So what would it be like to live under that kind of rule, to live under that kind of reign? Or how about this? What would it be like to be one of Jesus' disciples? Right, the ability to walk and talk and see and laugh with Jesus. Like for me, I can only imagine my staff, every time they wake up in the morning, they're like, oh, God, I got CPD today. Right? But for disciples, they wake up like, oh God, I get to see my Savior of the world today. I get to experience and witness his amazing power and his amazing love and message. And so when we read through the Gospels, we think, man, it would have been so much easier if we, to believe back then. Right? Some people think that. Now, there are situations in the Bible which have, I think, close parallels to our own lives. And this portion here, verses 22-26, is one of those times. And I want to explain. Joseph, he was one of God's chosen people, right? He was an Israelite. He was one of, God, he was one of the sons of Jacob. But Joseph, he lived and he worked in a not-so-holy place. He lived in a secular, even pagan society where God's true people or his children were considered at best second-class citizens. So Joseph, a follower of God, lived in a pagan, secular society, in a secular world, where he and his people were considered second class. Does that sound familiar for any of us? Let me ask you this. Let me get this a little real for you. Do you feel sometimes that it is hard to be a follower of Christ in this world? Huh? Yeah? That it is difficult to express your faith at work. That it seems for some reason perfectly fine in our PC culture 
to list off why you think sex outside of marriage is perfectly fine, why the legalization of drugs ought to be accepted, why divorce should always be an option, why there shouldn't be any talk or gender role of gender roles or norms, that gender is indeed fluid, they say, that homosexuality is not wrong, but the moment that you speak on anything contrary to kind of the liberal anti-biblical views and you are immediately stamped as a bigot, as a Bible-thumping racist fundamentalist, as some ignorant conservative, as a radical religious nut who's clearly not gotten with, gotten with the times. And while it's perfectly okay expressing those kind of atheistic or agnostic or mainstream cultural views, and even living those lifestyles, the moment that you vocalize or display your biblical principles of Christian life and liberty, it all of a sudden becomes an attack. That's hard. Second rate, second class. You can speak, but you shut up. Right? Now, if it's difficult, then congratulations. You are living what Christ said in Matthew 10, 22. You will be hated because of me, Jesus says. Because the world hated Jesus. The more you resemble him, you know, some churches are kind of throwing off this, this silly idea that the more you look like Jesus, the more accepting people will be, the more loving. No. Jesus says, you're going to be hated because of me. While there will be people who are drawn to your faith and drawn to the light of Christ in you, let me tell you why. It will be because the Spirit of God is drawing them near to him through you. God's doing that. Okay? Naturally, in terms of our flesh, there's nothing to be drawn. Why would they want you? You are complete opposite. You are oil there, water. It does not mix. The only way someone is drawn to you because of your faith is only by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's why we pray. But more often than not, you will not face someone who will respond kindly to your dogmatic faith. You're not. I can't think of my entire ministry life or entire Christian life where I'm, I'm, where I'm sharing my views and people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I get that. I love that. No. They, they don't like my faith and the principles I believe. They don't believe that it's grace alone. They don't believe it's faith alone. They don't believe it's Christ alone. They don't believe it's scripture alone. And they certainly don't believe it is for the glory of God alone. They believe it is for them alone. That it is for money alone. That it is for pleasure alone. It is for their own self-autonomy alone. It is for them and themselves only. Let me say this. If, however, you're not facing any type of pushback whatsoever then you might need to step out of your comfort zone a little bit. Okay? Do you get what I'm saying? If you're not getting any type of spiritual pushback, then you might need to step out of your comfort zone. Ask yourself this. If someone were to describe you, what would they say? Would they say, oh, well, this person, yeah, he or she loves Jesus. He or she loves the church. He or she loves, is a Christian. Or would they say he or she has really nothing to do with the faith they claim to follow? I, I don't see it. They say they're a Christian, but I don't, I don't see it. Comfortable Christianity can often feel like and quite often resembles just worldly living. Do you know that? Comfortable Christianity. It just resembles worldly living. 
God is saying, step out of that comfort zone. Step out. But let me explain where I'm getting all this. In this section, we read of God's blessings on Joseph. Okay, so Joseph, he lived out his years in Egypt with his family. And there he saw his children born and his children raised all the way into the fourth generation. He lived a long time. So Joseph, he lived a long and prosperous and rich life, 110 years, according to verses 22 and 26. And if you recall a few sermons I gave not too long ago, to the Egyptian, 110 year marks what? That's a good thing, they say. That's a fruitful, that's an ideal, fruitful, productive life, almost like an immortal life, because they expect even their pharaohs to live up to that much. But what's interesting is what we do not read about Joseph's life. We don't read anything else about his power and his prestige in Egypt. I mean, this guy should have some pretty awesome writings about him. He was a Hebrew slave who became the number two in the most powerful nation at that time. Not only that, we don't know how rich he was or how prominent his children became in the Egyptian circle, in the Egyptian life. There's no information about them. We don't read of him opening doors for his brothers and his families to become great and instrumental in the cultivation of their race and their culture within Egypt, nor do we read anything about Joseph elevating his father's family to that of kind of nobility or aristocracy that a lot of kind of people who enter into prominent figures end up doing for their families. We don't hear any of that stuff. There's no accolades. It's like this. If I were to write my own obituary, which, wait, no. You can't write your own obituary. That's morbid too. If I were to write my autobiography, I would say this. David Lim, son, brother, husband, father, celebrity pastor of Falls Church City, uses his power and prominence to end city hunger. He has single-handedly raised up his siblings to the level of Instagram celebrity status with each ringing in at least 5 million hits a day. David's genius knows no bounds. He is a force to be reckoned with. Justin Bieber chooses David over Hillsong megachurch pastor to be his spiritual advisor. David has shown the world what true ministerial success is. Times Magazine describes Sunday services as shining star on par with Olympic openings. David is awesome. God forbid any of that ever comes true. But that's what most writings address. It is an inflation of someone's contribution to society, to their lives, to their family and friends. It talks only about the good. It talks about their accomplishments and the countless accolades they've received. But what little we read of Joseph seems to point to the exact opposite direction. So here's what we kind of get. We, we get this. Joseph, he lived with his father's family. Like he had the whole nation at his fingertips, but he, he lives with dad. He lives with dad and his family, it says in verse 22. And if you recall, where did they settle? <clears throat> they didn't go into like the prominent section. They didn't live in Manhattan. They didn't live in like downtown D.C. or anything like that. No, he had settled in Goshen where the family settled. And this was so that because the Egyptians hated their guts. So they kind of said, okay, we'll still stay in Egypt. We'll stay where we're kind of out of sight. So we'll settle here because Egyptians hate shepherds. They think they're lowly class. And not only that, they're Hebrews, so they just hate them. 
Not only that, Joseph he identified himself with the ancient promises made to Abraham and also to his grandfather Isaac and to his father Jacob. And we get that from verse 24. But not only that, Jacob brought his half-Egyptian children and his half-Egyptian grandchildren with him so they apparently could get assimilated into the Israelite family. Now, by the way, we don't know exactly what happened to uh, his Egyptian wife. She's the one who came from that prominent priestly family. But it seems like this, that Joseph really wanted to ensure that his children and his grandchildren, children, that they knew of God. And that they were reminded that, yes, even though they had Egyptian blood, that they were really children of God. And so here we see what really mattered to Joseph at the end of his life. It wasn't that he was esteemed and immortalized as the one who made it to the highest office in the land outside of Pharaoh. No. You see, for him, at the end of his days, what was so important for him was about the community that he was in. It was actually about community. It was about his family. It was about being a part of God's covenant family. So, whether you're married and have kids, or married and you want kids, or you're not married but one day you will and you will want kids, the idea is this, that we would all love to kind of build up our own family. Okay? Build up our own family. Meaning, when you look for someone, like a spouse, right, you kind of choose after a partner who you think would be compatible with. She likes this. He likes that. She's a traveler. I love traveling. She loves to dine out. I love to dine out and all this, whatever you want to call it. This compatibility is how you mesh with them, how you gel with them. Right? You also want to find someone who kind of has the same principles, same type of family values as you. And then when you get married, so everything's wonderful. And then you start thinking about kids and your, or your future kids and how great it would be to raise them according to your own image. Of course, you probably don't say that. Right? But you think, I, 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 for me, I wanted a little David. And I got one, right? And then we want, a little, we want a little grace, and we certainly got one of those too, right? So we want kind of kids out of our, from our own image. And so we think we know then how to structure them, how to raise them up, how to instruct them in the way that they should go. So some of us, we want to raise our children to be the next Michael Jordan or the next Bill Gates or the next Ben Carson pre-politics. And so when we think of family as just kind of living a good family life and having good opportunities for advancement, just doing well. Do you know what all that thought does? It becomes a distortion of biblical truth because faithful Christian living does not always equal having a good family life. Okay? You see, what God promised was to use this family structure to build his covenant family. He commands. He commands us to turn us into disciples by means of, or turn our children by means of diligent parental teaching or careful kind of biblical discipline. And so as we kind of faithfully do those things, then God blesses us. He blesses us with lavish, not lavish living, but he blesses us with good family life. And look, I'm not saying this, that you can't encourage your children to pursue other things. I would hope that you would Motivate your kids to excel academically, even athletically. But this is what I'm getting at. The singular focus and purpose that we have as parents and soon-to-be parents is to build up our own covenant family that loves God with all our heart, soul, and mind. 
That should be our objective as mom and dad. That should be our objective as husband and wife. That should be your objective even as a single individual. That was the sole purpose for Joseph's rise to power in Egypt. It was to serve God's agenda, God's growing and emerging covenant family. Because beyond serving God's plan of raising up followers, if Joseph just focused on his power and his prestige, then all that would have been meaningless. You know, one thing I've heard from many parents, especially back when I was a youth pastor, was this. They would come to me, and their kids would have gone off to college, and they would cry out and say, in desperation for their souls, because their children were completely so far away from God. And I would say, well, mom and dad, Mrs. so-and-so, Mr. so-and-so, what did you do the moment that they were born to the moment that they graduated from high school? What did you do? And they said, and they would admit, they stressed out about getting that 4.0 GPA. They made sure that their kids got high SAT scores. They essentially let their kids get away with murder as long as they brought in those high marks. And they would certainly discipline their kids if they skipped school or if they skipped a tutoring class. But you know what? If they were sleepy and they wanted to skip church on Sunday... If they were sleepy, a bit tired from that overnight, from that all-nighter and not do their quiet time in the morning like their pastor, like I was encouraging them to do, then they said, by all means, skip it. And now what are we facing? I say to the parents, well, what do you expect? A spiritual epidemic of what the author of Proverbs 22, 6 so prophetically writes. He says this. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. We as a church, we need to understand the distinction between raising our kids the worldly way and raising our kids the godly way. Is your goal for your children, and let's say this even for yourself, is it simply to earn prestige and success in this world? To cause the world to sit up and take notice of your greatness or is your goal for your kids, and again, for you, is to identify them and assimilate them into the people of God, his church? Look, we want to train our people, our kids, and one another to be faithful disciples of Jesus and equip them to serve him. Because what God is doing until Jesus comes is that God is in the business of building up his eternal covenant family. A people where God, where people where, uh, where God can say, you know what? You're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. Because at the end of it all, on your deathbed, I want you guys to hear me out well. On your deathbed, because we're all going to die one day. On your deathbed, the only thing that will matter won't be how much money you've earned by investing in Bitcoin or how much fun you had all those trips to, to Santorini or to Vegas or to New York or to wherever, or how many people looked up to you, how many people thought you were this, the cat's, you know, sorry, the cat's meow. The only thing that will matter at the end of the day is your place in the community we call the church. At the end of the day, the only thing that will ever matter upon your entire physical and eternal existence is your place as the part of the bride of Christ. And who you placed in your heart and who you live for. Is it Jesus or is it the world? If you believe in Jesus, if you are his disciple, 
then you are part of the family of God. The person who believes in Christ and lives for him, who's sitting right next to you. That is your spiritual brother and sister in Christ. They are bound to you in life and death. Why? Because we've been bound by the life and death of Jesus. The church kind of acts like your mother, the one who nurtures you and cares for you. And God himself is our perfect father. He is the one who is the father to the fatherless. He is the father who knows our weaknesses. He is the father who watches over us daily. He provides for our needs. And he is the one who will take us to glory to live in his house forever. You know, you and I, we might have our own agenda for our lives and for our family, for our spouses, for our children. But what must take precedence is God's agenda. It must Look, I, ha- I agreed with Grace that Junior won't ever play football. Okay? That was the one thing. But he's got the limb genes, which means that he might be big. And with his daddy's historic average of six points per game in basketball during his high, high school glory days, I think my son could go far. Maybe in basketball, maybe in baseball, even though I was horrible at it. The point is this, I have an agenda for him, I do, and I can push him all I want towards it, but I have to know this, and this is what God is saying, I must never overshadow my son's primary and all-encompassing agenda, and that is to know God and make him known as a member of the covenant family. I must never derail him from that singular pursuit of knowing Christ and making him known as a follower of Jesus Christ. If in any way I get in that way, I am sinning against God. So an encouragement for all of us is this. To the parents, to the soon-to-be parents, to the one day, maybe a few years from now, you'll be parents. I know you have an agenda, and I know it is for the betterment of your children. But God, he's got something in store for them too. And it's better. And it leads him and leads her, whoever your children might be, to God. That's what we want for them. Amen? So what now? I know that we all hate waiting, and I know that we all want to kind of be active and obedient in our lives and stuff, but... This, is kind of, this leads to our second point. That in this life, as we do what we need to do, as we're active, we also need to actually wait and hope for salvation. That's my second point. We need to wait and hope for God's salvation. So like I mentioned before, have you ever thought of what your tombstone would say? In one sentence, what would be the most important thing to say about you? Well, the Bible kind of gives us, gives us that about Joseph. It's not here in Genesis, but the statement is, is actually included in Hebrews chapter 11, which is called the Hall of Faith. So again, what do you think it would say for Joseph? That Joseph was hated by his brothers. He was sold as a slave, but he fought through it and became the prime minister of Egypt. I mean, that'd be a pretty spectacular tombstone read. Or because of Joseph's wise administration, he saved the entire region from starvation. Millions of lives are indebted to him. Again, it has nothing to do with the praises. It has nothing to do with his, his accomplishments. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22, it reads this. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. So get this. It's a bit odd. The high point of the story of Joseph 
was his instruction about his burial. That is what he is known for. Similarly, Joseph says something what Jacob said back in chapter 49, right? Don't bury me here, but take my bones with you and God delivers you from this land. So why is this important? Why did it matter so much to Joseph about where he was buried? We don't have to guess. It says in verse 24 and 25, he says, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. The reason Joseph was not willing to be buried in Egypt was because God said he would surely visit him. What does that mean? God's visiting or visitation, it means God's intervention. What does God's intervention mean? Usually, biblically, it means that God, he then visits his people carrying salvation. That's the intervention. Visits his people with salvation. Joseph knew that God would deliver one day the people of Israel from Egypt. Because this is already mentioned in Genesis chapter 15, when God told Abraham, hey, Abraham, there's going to be a nation, and it's going to enslave you, but you know what? Afterwards, don't worry, I'm going to lead you out, and you're going to come out with a lot of possessions. So Joseph, he knew of this saying, he knew of this promise, and he expected God to keep his word. How interesting that during that time in Joseph's life, though, by the way, the whole exodus was going to happen centuries later, right? And yet, during this time, during this time when Joseph was waiting in hope for salvation, waiting in hope for God's redemption, how was his life? It was pretty good. He was living a pretty good life. There was work, there was food, there was freedom. Yeah, the neighbors didn't like him all that much, but life was pretty good. And yet, Joseph knew, despite having the riches, despite having the fame, despite having the recognition, despite having all the acclaim, he still knew it wasn't everything. It was not everything. He's saying, this life is good, but it can be better. This is why he clung to the promises of God. This, that's why even as a prime minister, even as someone who saved his entire family from extinction, even someone who reconciled to his fa- was reconciled to his family after decades, I would bet that at that moment he would be on cloud nine, being successful, being the one who brought the family together and, 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 and really preserving them. Yet even in the midst of such joy and prosperity, Joseph, he did not dwell upon it. He did not sit on that. Instead, for him, he said, oh, my hope is not in what is seen. I'm not going to bank on what's going on right now. My hope is for ultimate salvation of God's promise. I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't know what, how it's going to look like, but that is my hope because it's got to be better than this. I think we have the problem of thinking this, that you and I, once we kind of get out of our current mess, that we'll be Okay. We, we, we think that, don't we? And yeah, it does, look, it does get a little bit better. That we start thinking once we start making money, that things will start settling down. Things will get a little bit better. That will be fine. So we usually use this word called finally. Once we finally get married, once we finally have kids, once I finally get my degree, once I finally finish school, once I finally get healed, once I finally get out of depression, when I finally get my citizenship, when I finally do this or finally get that, there is no such thing as finally until God says finally. 
There is no such thing as finally for us until God says it is done. And that's how the book of Genesis ends. It's about waiting in hope. And that's interesting because we know that the next book is Exodus. In Exodus, we know it's all about the stories of the Israelites who are groaning, who are in pain and suffering because of the enslavement, because this waiting and hope isn't just how Genesis ends. In fact, it's not even how Exodus ends. It's how the whole Old Testament ends. Waiting. Just waiting. In Malachi, which is the last book in the Bible, the Old Testament, it tells us on the day the Lord will come to visit his people with salvation and bring judgment upon the wicked. There's still a sense of waiting. And so what do we get from the Gospels? The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It says this, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. There's this expectation, this anticipation. Remember how from the beginning of Genesis I said it was all about Jesus? Guess what still is? Because even through the Old Testament ends waiting in hope, guess what? The New Testament also ends waiting in hope because even in Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible, we're left with this desperate cry from the people, even so, come Lord Jesus. It is not final until God says it's final. So yes, Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and when he came, he came in humility and humbleness. He brought salvation to those who will trust and obey him. So what are we then waiting for now? Jesus already came 2,000 years ago. Well, we're waiting for those who do not know him to surrender their lives to him. God in his grace, he has given us time. Every single day, that you are in your unbelief. God in his grace is giving you time. But the time, you see, is ticking away. And he wants us to surrender our lives to him. But you know what? For us as believers, what are we then waiting for? We're waiting for the second coming. We're waiting for the second coming where Jesus will not come in humility, but he will come in spectacular glory. In glory, and he will come to vanquish all sin once and for all. So until then, until that happens, the Lord reveals to us the last message in Genesis. He says, don't neglect, don't ignore one another, but continue to strive towards the common goal of Christ's likeness as a church that loves me, as a church that resembles me, as a church that is willing to do anything for me. So for families, what does that mean practically? That means you need to pray before we play. Okay? Let's pray before we play. Bring Christ into the lives of our children and let's begin to pursue after God's agenda before our own. So yes, have them excel. Have them do this. Have them try many different things. Find out what their talents are. But beyond that and foundationally, let them know and lead them to the refreshing waters of Christ. Lead them there. And finally, from now until we too lay in our deathbeds, may you and I also place our hope in the joy of salvation and in the hope that one day, someday, Christ will come to finalize God's redemptive plan and he will restore everything. Everything before Genesis 3, all that good stuff. One day, despite the hardships that life has to offer, because you guys are dealing with a lot of stuff in your life, and God, he knows that. One day we will see the glory of the Lord revealed. But God says right now, 
Just wait for it. Just wait. Keep going, but just wait. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in allowing us to finish this Genesis series, which has been a tremendous blessing for me personally as one who has prepared the sermons for it. But Lord, we know that you have spoken powerfully into the, into the lives of our members and to our brothers and sisters here who are still, maybe from the beginning of the year, been coming before you with questions, with a lot of just confusion, a lot of different kind of thoughts. And, and so we pray that your your word, your scripture, we know which is good and, is, and it's alive and powerful that you will be the one to give them the answers, that you will lead them. Not so much that where their lives will get better necessarily, where their circumstances will get better, but Lord, that we know that your word will lead us to you. And you are all we need. So brothers and sisters, I want to give you guys a time to just reflect and think about what you've heard. If you're a mom, if you're a mom or dad or you have, you have children or you have grandchildren or you just have someone who's younger but until you're mentoring, you have God's divine agenda right now that he has placed upon your heart. And this will carry on throughout their lives and it will multiply as they disciple others from generation to generation and it will lead them into eternity with God. Do not minimize this amazing, amazing responsibility that the Lord has given us. But secondly, know that in the midst of your trials and tribulations, even though you're struggling right now, that God, he tells you to trust in him, to have faith in him, and to wait for him. He's not going to leave you hanging. God will bless you each and every day with his grace. He will lead you. He will. But that final day, it will come when he says it. Not when you think just because this part of my life gets better or once I get married or once I do this. No, no, none of that. It's when he says it. And it's going to come. But he just encourages us to keep persevering and to wait upon him. So let's take this time and pray.